It's great to be here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors, and it's a joy to be together uh, with God's people in God's house, worshiping our great God together. Uh, if you are a guest with us, we're particularly grateful that you joined us. Hopefully you stopped by the hub, which is that big round desk in the lobby. But if you didn't, make sure you stop by there on your way out. We'd love to meet you, get to know you a little bit, answer any questions you might have, and give you a free gift as a way of saying thank you for coming. In addition to that physical hub that's out in the lobby, we have something called the Virtual Hub. It's online at forkskalarn.com. That's where you can find everything that's going on in the life of our church, whether it's uh, men's Bible study. There's a new one, by the way, that's starting up this Thursday night. Women's book clubs, um, community groups, youth activities, all that stuff is found online. So I encourage you to go there. A couple things I want to mention to you this morning. Uh, last week, we highlighted two gospel partners uh, who were heading overseas, one who had actually returned. They've been overseas for 14 years, Eric and Christy, and they're um, doing a home assignment for a couple of months before they head back overseas. And so we, we prayed for them. And then alongside of that, Jacob and Rebecca Ketchens, uh, who've been here in Tallahassee for the last couple of years, we always knew it was kind of a temporary stay in preparation for them to go overseas long-term. And so their last Sunday was here last Sunday as well. And so if you want to find out more about either one of these gospel partners, you can go to the coffee bar on your way out. There's little prayer cards that are there. would encourage you to pick one of those up, find out more about how you can uh, get their email updates. And along with that, they are both raising support. And, uh, and so they, I know would appreciate your financial support to continue to get, take the gospel to the world. So that was last week, focusing on the gospel for the world. Today, I want to highlight to you a couple of things that are going on in our community and seeking the gospel uh, to really permeate where we live right here. And so if you didn't know this, across the street, we have a partnership with Allegro Assisted Living Facility. We've had a chapel service that's been meeting for about the last year and a half that we've had. We have volunteer teachers. We have volunteer people who lead the worship and the singing. Um, and it's just a really sweet time to gather together on the Lord's Day across the street with those residents just to let them know that they are not forgotten, that they're loved by the Lord and loved by the body of Christ. Along with that, we have men's studies and women's studies that are happening weekly, and um, we love to do some special events. And so yesterday, there was a special event over at Allegro. Got a few pictures that are up here. Uh, Doug Smidley and the Smiths and a few others played some songs. Uh, it's called a hymn sing. Just invited residents to be able to sing. They even had to sit outside because there wasn't enough room in the chapel, which was really sweet. And uh, just so another opportunity for us to let them know that we love them, that we're here for them. And so if you have an interest in serving in Allegro, you can go to forkskalarn.com slash Allegro to find out more information. Or I'm going to have our volunteers raise their hands. So Ben Lazowski, raise your hand real quick. So Ben, sir, he leads the chapel. Libby, raise your hand. Yay! Women's Bible Studies, David Freeland and John Johnson, raise their hands, leading the men's study. There's a few other volunteers that serve faithfully every Sunday morning. Um, and along with that, we have special events that we'd love to have help with. And so if you're interested in doing that, you can either talk to them or talk to myself. We'd love to have you serve. So that's Allegro. All while that was going on across the street, right here in our facility, we also had a work day for our special needs ministry. So if you're not aware of this, we care for a good number of children who have special needs every Sunday morning. And um, that ministry has continued to expand uh, we're one of the few churches that provide services to children with special needs. And so we started off in a little classroom over here, and we moved to a bigger classroom over here, and then we were outgrowing that space. And in God's providence, um, we 
or we had a bay that opened up next door to Gallery 14. So Play Big, which has been a wonderful partner with us, a business partner for a long time, they ended up having to close their doors, and uh, the elders made the decision to keep that bay that they used for our special needs ministry. And so we needed to tidy it up a little bit. And so there's some pictures here from the workday yesterday. We had about 20 volunteers that showed up to clean and paint and prepare that room. There's another workday this upcoming Saturday to continue to get that room ready to go. The Whatever You Do Camp, the art track, is going to do a mural on that wall so that by the beginning of August, that special needs ministry will be able to meet um, next door in, uh, in Unit 15. I'm really excited about that. And along with that, with every expanding ministry, would invite you, if you're interested, to serve in this ministry. If you just have a love uh, for children, you want to come alongside of those who are vulnerable and just let them know that you, uh, that you love Jesus and you love them. We'd love to have you serve. You can talk to Shannon Pfeiffer or my wife, Julia, or Paige Thomas, who leads that special needs ministry. Uh, they would love to get you plugged in. So those are our announcements this morning. Um, and as it relates to uh, giving, just want to remind you that this is why we give. We not only give as an act of worship to the Lord, we also give to see the gospel permeate our culture and even go around the world. And so if you've never given here at Four Oaks, uh, you're welcome to do so this morning. You can give online, you can give via our app, you can give text to give, or you can give uh, via check or cash and drop it off in the offering boxes on your way out. All right, enough for announcements. Let's jump into God's word this morning. Uh, we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7 once again. We're making our way slowly but surely through the gospel of Matthew, and we are rounding the bend uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so as you're turning there to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, I thought I would share with you a quick story this morning. On Saturday, January 13th, 2018, at 8.07 a.m., all residents of the Hawaiian Islands received the following message in all caps. Emergency alert, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. As you can imagine, as people are getting this message on their phones, panic sets in. And residents across all Hawaiian islands, about 1.5 million people began to gather their loved ones and their most precious belongings, and they wondered if this might be the end of the world. And so after seeking shelter, the people of Hawaii, they huddled with one another, and they waited, and they prayed, and they just hoped that that nuclear missile would not hit them. Well, at 8... 43 a.m., a second message was received 36 minutes later that says this, emergency alert, there is no missile threat or danger to the state of Hawaii, repeat, false alarm. Come to find out this ominous warning was a simple human error in which a person mistakenly pushed the wrong button. But as you can imagine, the citizens of Hawaii, uh, as they came out from hiding in their bathtubs in their basements, uh, and they're learning that this emergency alert uh, that they had received, this warning of an imminent nuclear threat, was simply a false alarm. Their panic and their fear transformed into rage, right? Who did this? How could this happen? Someone needs to be fired. And in response to the crowd's animosity, someone indeed became the scapegoat, the one who pushed that wrong button, and he was fired later that day. But after the scare... While some were angered, others were more reflective. 
They saw it as an opportunity to consider their lives, their, their relationships, their, their path moving forward, their faith. How might they live differently? How might they make the most of their days, none of which are guaranteed? You see, while the warning might have been a false alarm, its impact for some of the Hawaiian residents was quite sobering. And it led to change. Well, we are finishing the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has finished up his last teaching of the Sermon on the Mount last week, and now he's kind of making some concluding remarks. He's been casting this vision of life in the kingdom, and he's inviting people to come in, to respond to his invitation, to embrace his way of life. But at the very same time, Jesus wants to offer his hearers then and us now a sober warning. It's the truest of true statements. It's not a false alarm. He says, there is an eternal judgment that is coming, and you must be ready. And so let's stand now and hear these words of warning from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. This is what he says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we hear these words from you, and they are somber. They are heavy. They are weighty. But would you give us true ears to hear the sound of your warning? Would you give us eyes to see what life in the kingdom looks like and whether we are in it or not? Would you give us a heart that truly seeks to respond to your invitation to come to you, to enter through the narrow gate? God, do your work through your spirit in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take your seats. And as you do, today's sermon is entitled, This is Not a Drill. You got three points. Uh, The first thing we're going to look at is two roads found in verses 13 and 14. And then we're going to look at two trees in verses 15 to 20. And then one judgment found in 21 through 23. So two roads, two trees, one judgment. All right, first, two roads. Jesus begins this last section of the Sermon on the Mount with words that are very unpopular to our modern ears. He doesn't say that there are many roads leading to heaven that all religions are seeking the same God and salvation, uh, that all belief systems are virtually the same. Instead, Jesus says there are only two gates 
leading to two roads that are going to two very different destinations. And in verse 13, he says that there's one gate that is wide. It is well lit. It's easy to get on this path. You could even say it's almost natural to get onto this road. As John Stott says in his commentary on this passage, he says, to enter this road, you need leave nothing behind, not even your sins, self-righteousness, or pride. He goes on to say this. He says, there is plenty of room on it for a diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. No one will ever question your beliefs or criticize your behavior. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. See, on this path, this road, Jesus says that everyone is following their own opinions, their own inclinations, whatever is on their heart, as fallen as their hearts might be. Whatever they want, that's the path that they can take. And there are countless people that are along this road. But while all roadsides along this road say that it leads to heaven, Jesus says that this road, verse 13, it ultimately leads to destruction. It's pretty sobering, right? On the other hand, in verse 14, Jesus says that there is another gate. And this gate is narrow. Its way is hard. Again, John Stott in his commentary says this, he says, one has to look for this gate to find it. It is, is as narrow as a needle's eye. Further, in order to enter it, you must leave everything behind. Sin, selfish ambition, covetousness, even if necessary, family and friends. For no one can follow Christ who has not first denied himself. Alexander McLaren, um, in imagining what this gate might look like, uh, he says that he imagined that there are these two pillars on each side of the narrow gate. One pillar is the first beatitude, to be poor in spirit. In other words, you're coming to this gate saying, I'm empty-handed. I've got nothing. I'm completely needy. I am bankrupt. And then the other is this. You do bring something to the narrow gate, but it's not all of your good deeds, all of your righteousness. You're simply bringing your sin. In essence, you're saying, I've got nothing good to offer you, Jesus, except for my sin. And obviously, that's not good. But I'm coming to you open-handed, recognizing that there's only one way through the narrow gate, and it's by trusting in Jesus that just as I'm opening my hands to you, so you open up your arms to me on the cross. That where I give you my sin, you die for it. And where I'm offering nothing good on my own, you give me your perfect righteousness so that I'm not only forgiven, but I am justified in the sight of a holy, righteous God. I give all of myself to you, and you give your all to me. See, Jesus requires no payment to enter this gate, just surrender. Jesus says in John 14, 6, what does he say? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you and I both know, though, that these words are very offensive to our culture that values tolerance, right? People will say that that's disrespectful to say that there's only one way. There's only one gate that leads to life. That's unloving. That's intolerant. 
But are they right? Tim Keller, I think, provides some really helpful analysis on what it truly means to be tolerant. And he says that actually there's many different types of tolerance, and for the most part, Jesus is tolerant. So he goes on to say, he says, for example, there's a social tolerance, where people are called to be civil, to get along in society, regardless of their beliefs. Along with that, there's relational tolerance, in which we're called to um, to show love and respect in our interpersonal relationships, regardless of the differences of opinion that we might have. Along with that, there's legal tolerance, in which people are free to practice their own faith without threat of penalty or arrest or imprisonment. And as we've heard in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is for all these types of tolerance. He tells his followers not just to show kindness to your brothers and your sisters and your neighbor, but even to your enemies and to pray for those who don't just disagree with you, but who seek to persecute you. He says to obey the government, to humbly serve and protect the vulnerable, to care for the weak, and to focus first on judging yourself and assessing your own heart before you begin to bring a judgment upon someone else. Jesus also says to to love and respect everyone because they are made in the image of God. They have inherent value and worth regardless of what their opinions might be. In other words, Jesus very much preached and lived out tolerance and called his followers to do the same. He welcomes honest conversations. He he draws out people's hearts through thought-provoking questions. And most importantly, he is loving and patient towards others as they consider the claims of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Jesus is tolerant in a lot of ways, but there is one way that Jesus is not tolerant. He does not preach theological tolerance. He says, you either believe in me, the narrow gate that leads to life, or you reject me in whatever shape or form that looks like, whether it's through your religion or through spirituality or your agnosticism or your atheism, whatever belief you might have, if it's not going through the narrow gate, then it will lead to destruction. Jesus says there's no neutrality. You're either on the road, Jesus, that leads to life, or you're on the road that leads to death. That's sobering words for us to hear in the culture that we live in. And so let me just pause this morning. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ, if you haven't entered the narrow gate Let this be a warning to you, and let this be an invitation to you. Jesus says, enter the narrow gate. Bring yourself to me, and I'll give all myself to you. Don't let judgment be upon you. Let it be on me. But for those who do enter the gate, who have trusted in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, once we surrender our lives to Jesus and we put our faith in him, Jesus goes on in verse 14 and he says that these boundaries on this road are narrow. Uh, We seek to follow God's will and not our own on this road. The way or the road that leads to life, Jesus says, he uses a particular word, he says, it is hard. That word for hard is kind of hard to understand apart from understanding the Greek. The Greek means that it's to be squeezed or pressed out like a grape in a wine press. 
So in other words, Jesus is saying that this hard road is going to lead to great difficulty and trouble. We are on a hard, narrow road with this broad road over here that is constantly beckoning us to come over there. It's going to be hard to, 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 to turn away from the world and its temptations. We have an enemy that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to parade as an angel of light, inviting us to follow after him. Jesus says it's going to be hard when the enemy's trying to attack you. It's also going to be hard when you get to fight against your own flesh, when everyone around you is doing something else, and you know, though, in your heart of hearts that this is wrong. As we take up our cross daily to follow Jesus, he warns us also that it may even lead to persecution. In other words, this hard path not only requires surrender, but it may also require suffering. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, what did he tell his disciples then that I think he tells to us as well right now? John 15. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Guys, in our culture, this is becoming an increasing reality. We will be maligned, we will be persecuted, we will be labeled as intolerant as we trust in Jesus Christ as the only way and as we proclaim him to a lost and dying world. Following Jesus will be hard. That's not the end of the story. Jesus says it is worth it. He says that this narrow, hard road, what does it lead to? It leads to life. In other words, just as Jesus who went before us and the way of the cross led to suffering, it also led to salvation. And in the same way, our suffering is temporary But Jesus says salvation and the blessings of life and joy and peace, they are eternal. In comparison to the suffering, the glory so much outweighs it. It's worth it to go down the narrow road. It's worth it to follow after Jesus. But not only that, as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, those blessings, that destination that leads to life, that's not all we get. He says it's not just a destination that's enjoyable. Along this path of following Jesus, we actually do experience flourishing and blessing right here, right now. The first and the greatest way is that as we are following Jesus, guess what? He's with us. We get to build a relationship with the God of the universe. We have him walking alongside of us through his spirit. He's even living inside of us. We get to commune with him. We get to abide in his love. We get to know that the God of the universe is for us. We get to sing like a banner over us, right? That no matter what is going on, you are sovereign over us. Even what the enemy means for evil, you intend for good in my life. You're for me. You're never against me. We get to enjoy that. Not only that, but we get to enjoy fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ, that while there are few on this narrow road, we're not alone. Sometimes it feels lonely, but we are not alone. We not only have the God of the universe on our side, but we have one another on this journey together. How sweet it is when you and I, when we get to open up our lives to other people, we get to be open and honest and say, hey, this is what's really going on in my life. I want to move past the surface to get deeper with you. I want to share what's really going on in my life because I want you to be there with me. I want you to pray for me. I want you to love on me. I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to serve me. I want you to let me serve you as well. We're on this journey together. You're not alone. I'm not alone. We're together in this journey. What a sweet gift that is. And not only that, but we get victory over sin. 
We're no longer enslaved to sin as we say yes to Jesus. We, get, we experience forgiveness for our sin, and we get to experience more and more freedom in Christ as he becomes the center of our lives. As Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That was in his great high priestly prayer where he's praying for his church. He's saying, this is eternal life, and it's not just later, it's right now. And then he prays for his church. Oh, church, may you be united. May you be strong in your faith. May you walk the narrow road. I'm right there with you. So in these first two verses, Jesus, in essence, says there are two gates and two roads, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. Which gate will you go through? Which road will you walk down? Who are you trusting in? Who are you relying upon for your salvation? Jesus pleads, enter by the narrow gate. I think it's really important here as well. That while Jesus certainly gives a weighty sermon, he doesn't wait to warn. Sometimes the intolerant, uh, when we're told that we're intolerant when we share the gospel with someone, we can kind of feed into that um, desire then to be quiet about our faith, to share the good news. Jesus says, don't wait to warn your friends that are on the path that leads to destruction. Follow my example. Tell them how much I love them. Invite them to to join you on this road that truly leads to life. I know some of you have friends who aren't currently walking with the Lord. Pray for them. Continue to warn them and continue to hold out the invitation of Jesus. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. So Jesus not only warns us about the wide road of the world, but also about some of the leaders of this wide road. And so that leads us to point two. We move from these two roads to now two trees, uh, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus says a couple of things about these false prophets who had kind of made their way among the people. First, he warns them that they are deceptive. On the surface, they, they, they look like sheep. Uh, they present themselves as kind and courteous and meek and mild, and they're inviting, and before you know it, they have a following. But Jesus says they're not only deceptive, they are dangerous when they reveal their true nature. While outwardly they appear to be sheep, inwardly he says they are ravenous wolves with an insatiable hunger to destroy the flock. These false prophets, they seek to devour personally, relationally, spiritually, morally, financially. Their hope is to steal, kill, and destroy and to follow after their master, Satan himself. But you might be wondering, well, how do we identify these false prophets? How do we, how do we know who they are? I mean, they look, all, everyone, all the leaders look like sheep on the outside. How do we determine who are true and false teachers, true and false prophets, true and false leaders? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us there. Uh, he gives a helpful illustration that people would have been familiar with in the first century in verse 16. He says this. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Let me pause here real quick. Jesus first mentions this thorn bush. 
Um, it was also known as a buckthorn. And so from a distance, the buckthorn had a cluster of berries that looked like grapes. But then when you got up close to this buckthorn, you would actually realize they weren't grapes, but they were buckthorn berries, which were completely inedible and good for nothing. So that's the buckthorn. Then Jesus goes on and he talks about this other thistle. He says, can a thistle bring about figs? Well, there was another thistle that was like a thorn bush, um, and it produced this little flower that from a distance looked like a fig flower. But once you got up close to this flower, you realize that it actually didn't produce fruit at all. It just produced thorns. And so what is Jesus trying to say here right off the bat? He's saying, guys, I want you to pay close attention to your leaders. Get up close and personal to examine their fruit. Don't keep a distance. You've got to get up close and personal towards them. I think this is a great instruction for us. Before we start following after leader, we need to really examine their fruit. It's why it's really important for us as elders to be examined by you. We want to be held accountable by you. We want you to, to examine our fruit to see whether we're walking with the Lord or we're not. That's why I would encourage all of us to have let our primary place of leadership and teaching be in this local church. Doesn't mean we can't benefit from other teachers, but you won't know them in the same way. They can't speak to you in the same way. They can't shepherd and lead you in the same way. So prioritize your local church's leaders. Be up close and personal. It's sobering for us as well as leaders. Like, goodness, as Paul says to Timothy, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Pay attention. How is your heart doing? Are you continuing to follow after me? So that's what Jesus says. He says, be attentive. But along with that, he says, also be patient. Uh, Verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus says you need to get up close and personal. Along with that, you need to wait. Be patient. Eventually the leader's fruit will reveal who they truly are. People will always be true to their inner nature, eventually. They might be able to staple up some good fruit for a little while, but eventually their their bad fruit is going to be revealed. And I appreciate what Kent Hughes says about um, these false prophets. He says that their fruit are demonstrated both in their deeds and their doctrine, both what they do and what they say. And oftentimes these deeds and doctrines kind of go hand in hand. Their fruit is displayed in both. And uh, I thought it'd be helpful just to what Jesus is saying, basically, be a good fruit inspector. Examine your leaders. And so here's four fruit that I think are really helpful to consider as you're um, examining whether a leader has good fruit or bad fruit. The first is this. Do they have the fruit of humility? Does the leader exalt himself or Jesus? Who is he or she trying to promote? Um, Are they promoting themselves and all of their righteous deeds? Or are they promoting Christ? Are they quick also to say, I'm sorry, when they make a mistake, when they do something wrong? Are they confess their sin? Are they quick to repent? Do they demonstrate a fruit of humility that says, I don't have it all together, but I know who does. His name is Jesus, and he's my Lord and Savior. So the fruit of humility. Second, I would call this the fruit of the word. 
are the leaders pointing to time-tested truths in the scriptures? Are they um, living by the word? Or are they pointing to kind of some new teaching or new practice that they've recently discovered that, will, that they now have figured it all out, that this is now the new way to life? Along with that and what they say, it's also you need to pay attention to what they don't say. You know, some false teachers will only say things that are popular in our culture, but they won't say the things that are unpopular. How are they examining not just portions of God's word, but are they preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God's word? Are they seeking to live out God's word more and more in their lives? So the fruit of humility, the fruit of the word. Third, the fruit related to blessings. In other words, does this leader emphasize physical blessings or spiritual blessings more? Also, along with that, pay attention to where the money goes. When they do receive money in a ministry, are they generous with it towards others? Do they invest more in kingdom-centered ministry, or do they invest more in themselves? When they promote blessings, are they seeking just physical blessings? And while those are certainly helpful and good, we've seen that in the Sermon on the Mount, that the Father cares for us and he meets our needs. At the same time, what do we see in the Sermon on the Mount over and over again? Jesus is inviting us into the life of the kingdom that is primarily focused on spiritual blessing. So what role does blessing have in their teaching and in their way of life? Last but not least, the fruit of discipleship. What effect does their teaching have on their followers? Pay attention not just to the teacher, but also to those who follow them. Are they growing in Christ? Are they growing in humility? Are they growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Or are they maybe contentious or divisive and following after the deeds of the flesh? Are they going just simply to be entertained? Or are they growing to follow after Jesus more and more and more? I could go on, but those are four quick ways to examine fruit in leadership to determine whether this person is truly following after the Lord or not. Jesus says you will know them, you will recognize them by their fruit. And along with um, that point, I want to mention to you this as well. I think while this passage is primarily focusing on false prophets, um, Jesus sort of expands it to say, hey, you're either a healthy tree or you're an unhealthy tree. And so I think he wants us to not only examine the fruit of false prophets, but also to examine the fruit of our own hearts. To do some fruit inspection. And I think it's important for you to just ask this question. Are you growing in the fruit of God? Are you growing in humility? Are you growing in your love for the scriptures? Are you longing for spiritual blessings more than physical ones? And are you making disciples who love Jesus and want to follow after him the way that you do? And if you do, praise God. But at the same time, if your fruit is not displaying the fruit of the Spirit, if you're not growing in your love for the Word, if you're longing more for physical blessings than spiritual blessings, if you're not truly making disciples, then you need to ask a question Am I a healthy tree? Where are my roots planted? Are my roots truly planted in Christ, or are they planted in some false doctrine, false teaching? Are they planted in the ways of the world? And if they are, would you turn back, sink your roots deeper into Christ, and let him live in and through you, display the fruit that he calls all of his followers to display? 
So do some fruit inspection, not only of those teachers, but of your own hearts this morning. Where are you at? All right, so Jesus says, be careful, pay attention, watch out, beware. Watch out for the wide way of the world, and along with that, watch out for false prophets. Last but not least, Jesus says this. He says, watch out for the final judgment. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Guys, this is a really sobering and ominous sort of warning, isn't it? Jesus says that one day there is a judgment that's coming. And that all will stand before him. He is the judge. And he's going to examine the fruit of our lives. He's going to examine whether we are truly trusting in him or not. And many people think that this paragraph is simply an outflow of the previous paragraph. And so this, these words are specifically a warning to false prophets saying, eventually your fruit is going to reveal yourself. And even if you continue to hide yourself in sheep's clothing, I know your heart. And you will be judged if you do not repent and turn towards me. But other people think that this paragraph also is really has in mind not just the false prophets, but everyone, that everyone is to examine their lives and to consider, am I truly trusting in Jesus or am I not? Well, Jesus makes it clear here that there are some attributes of what I would call false converts and false prophets that are the same as true converts and true teachers and leaders. But there are also some that are different. And so we're going to talk about these really quickly in this last paragraph. Jesus first makes it clear that there are some who call him Lord. Meaning you might agree with the statement of faith. Uh, you might have intellectual assent where you say, yeah, 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 Jesus is Lord. Yep, absolutely. Got that. There are false teachers that will claim, oh, yeah, I believe that Jesus is Lord. But Jesus says mere agreement is not enough. Jesus goes on and he says, not only do some call me Lord, but they call me Lord, Lord. To repeat the word Lord in the Semitic language, the Jewish language, it meant that there was an emotional fervor. There was an intense passion towards that person. Um, what does Jesus say towards Martha in John? He says, Martha, Martha. What did David say towards Absalom when, he see, when he's seeing Absalom go away from the Lord? He says, Absalom, Absalom, my son and my son. In other words, Jesus says there are some who have intense emotion, who get excited about Jesus in a worship service. They, they go around and they raise their hands and they're emotionally charged whenever they walk out. Jesus says that's not enough. He goes on and he says, not only that, but they even do good works for me. And this is really crazy. He says that they even prophesy in my name and even cast out demons. They do mighty works. How is that possible? Well, Jesus doesn't really answer that question. I wish he would. Um, some people think that it's maybe they do it in the power of Satan, even though they say that it's in the power of Jesus. Other people think, though, that it's really some who, like Judas Iscariot, he was sent out with the other 11 disciples 
He did good things for the Lord, even though we know that his heart was not really after the Lord. But he was surrounded by good works, and so God, through his common grace, applied grace to people who Judas met with. We don't know exactly how this happened, but the point is the same, that it's your good, uh, even if you have good works, even if you do good deeds in the name of Jesus, that is not enough. Jesus warns us, right thoughts about me are not enough. Emotionally connecting with what's going on in a worship service is not enough. Even acts of service are not enough. There are many people who have an intellectually stimulating, emotionally satisfying, socially redemptive kind of faith, but Jesus warns the false prophets and he warns the false converts. He says, if that is all you've got, when you come before me, I will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. You might be asking, what is enough? Well, thankfully, Jesus has two more traits that are true of true Christians and true leaders, true prophets that they must have. First, he says in verse 21, he says, they must do the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you don't say, I follow God just whenever it's convenient. Yeah, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey God. Uh, when my heart wants to. But, but really, uh, I'm going to leave certain aspects of my life apart from the Lord. I'll obey God to an extent whenever it's comfortable for me. But as soon as it's uncomfortable, no, I'm not going to bring that to the Lord. Jesus says, no, you must surrender your will to God's will. Every single part of your heart is mine. You should increasingly submit to my lordship. In other words, when you say, Lord, Lord, it's not just an intellectual ascent. It is your very heart that says, Lord, I want to follow you. You are my master. I will do whatever you say, even the hard things. I'm willing to do it because I love you. I'm entrusting my life to you. I'm submitting my whole heart to you. Even the hard places, I'm willing to repent and turn from them because I love you. True submission to the Father's will is a key characteristic of a true Christian, a true prophet. And along with that, Jesus says that while good deeds are important, in the previous paragraph, he says, hey, a healthy tree should bear good fruit. At the same time, Jesus wants to make it clear that the way to heaven is not by our good works. Some of these false prophets or, and even maybe false converts, they, they said, Lord, Lord, let me into your kingdom. Let me look at my accomplishments. Look at the good things that I've done. It's enough. I should be brought in. They might even drop the name. Oh, yeah, I've said your name before. Now give me the authority. Give me the power to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, no, your name dropping is not enough. Your, uh, your few good works are not enough. What does Jesus say, a true Christian? says, I got nothing. I got no good works that allow me to get into heaven. All I've got is a bunch of sin. I've got a lot of filthy rags. But I've got one thing. I've got your grace. It's by grace and grace alone that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. We simply say, I am a sinner. Remember the Pharisee says, oh, look at that man. He's just crying out for mercy. 
he's so sloppy, he's messed up, but look at me. Thank God I'm not like him. Jesus looks and he says, no, that tax collector over there, that is a man who is a man after my own heart. He recognizes there is nothing good he brings. He's trusting in the grace of Christ alone. In essence, what did we say earlier? You confess your neediness before God, and you just simply keep on bringing more sin. You say, Jesus, I thank you that you died for all of it. And here's what's really sweet. As we bring all of that to the Lord and it becomes our Lord and our Savior, Jesus says there's a relationship change that takes place. What does Jesus say to the false prophets? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. That is a, uh, not just a knowing about you. That is a relational sort of knowledge that Jesus is communicating. He's saying that once you trust in me, once you confess your neediness before me, once you submit your will to, to my will, you grow in a relationship with me. Those doctrines that you maybe had an intellectual assent to, now they are sweet scriptures as God is speaking his truth to you. They become love letters. You grow in your relationship with God, you, and he begins to change you from the inside out. You become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. You don't just know about him, you know him. And Jesus says, and I know you. I love you. Enter into the joy of your master forever and ever. So while there are some great warnings, there is a great invitation for you and me. And we need to pay attention to both the warnings and invitation. Jesus says, warning number one, don't let the world deceive you. The broad road looks good, it looks inviting, there's many people on it, but it ultimately leads to destruction. Warning number two, don't let false teachers deceive you. They might sound good, their teaching might be attractive, they might seem to have it all together, but they are really wolves in sheep's clothing. Eventually their fruit will reveal themselves. Last but not least, Jesus says, warning number three, don't deceive yourself. God wants more than just your intellectual assent. He wants more than just your emotional connection. He wants more than good works. Ultimately, he wants your heart. He wants a relationship with you. So don't deceive yourself in thinking, I'm just going through the motions and I'm good. No. Bring it all to the Lord and say, I want you, God, more than anything else. There's some warnings of Scripture, and it is no false alarm. Jesus is coming with judgment. But at the same time, I don't want to leave us there. Jesus doesn't just come with judgment. He also comes with eternal life for all those who are trusting in him. And I want you to notice that before these warnings, verse 13, the very beginning, it is an invitation. It begins this whole section with these words, enter by the narrow gate. It is a command, but it's even almost more than that. It is a plea. It is a heartfelt longing. Jesus says, I am the gate. Come to me. I'm the only one who can provide you with rest and safety from destruction. I'm the only one who can truly provide life and life abundantly. And I did it by taking the judgment upon myself so that you would not be judged. In essence, Jesus says, you push the atomic button missile button. like, And not just once accidentally, you push it over and over and over again. You've rebelled after me time and time again, but I will take the punishment for you. I will be the scapegoat for you so that you can enjoy rest, salvation, peace forever and ever and ever. 
John 10, Jesus says this way, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they have, my, have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In essence, Jesus says, I am not a wolf in sheep's clothing. I am the good shepherd. I am the lamb of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to the Father through me. Trust in me. Rely upon me. Put your faith completely in me that you may have life and life abundantly, both now and forever. Let's pray.